Well, we're privileged to open the Word of God together. We're in Galatians chapter 5, and if you find your way there, we are uh, making our way through this wonderful list called the Fruit of the Spirit. We have looked at a few already. We're looking at peace this morning. Uh, the Fruit of the Spirit is peace, Galatians 5.22. Peace is a precious commodity of life, many would agree, and see it more so in light of the current national and global circumstances that seem to threaten it. There's wars going on, there are rumors of pending war, we really live in unsettling times, and when you throw into the mix high inflation, high gas prices, high food prices, and this ridiculous trumped-up threat of climate change that is ruining the fracking and oil industries, which in itself has its own serious repercussions in our nation, and many other factors besides, we can understand why people see peace to be at such a premium. The ironic thing is that most of this mess that I've just mentioned is intentionally created by powerful people who find their ultimate peace of mind in their billions and trillions. Well, are you suggesting that powerful people in high places are running the country and disabling the masses and creating war for personal gain? Of course. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what depraved people do. People will do anything, you see, for peace of mind, even murder. Others will even end their own lives if they lose their kind of peace, this is why some rich people jump off buildings when they learn that they've lost everything in the stock market crash. I'll say it again, peace is a commodity. And I would even argue that to be at peace is really to live, to really live. But I say that not because of the current scene that I've just painted for you, but because of what God says about true peace. And after a detailed study on biblical love and joy, you wouldn't be surprised at all to learn that biblical peace is just as unique and unlike anything that the world can know or possess. And since the world speaks of peace and claims to experience it in varying degrees of intensity, we can only conclude that worldly peace and biblical peace are different by nature. And we have... Another instance, then, where the fruit of the Spirit has a counterfeit in the world. So what is the peace that the world knows, this worldly peace? Well, perhaps the best place to look is at the dictionary, since we go there to find standard meanings for the words that we use. It's the American Heritage Dictionary is as good as any. It has an expanded definition for peace. It says, quote, peace is the absence of war and other hostilities, freedom from quarrels and disagreements, public security and order, and internal contentment. The Oxford Dictionary has a similar definition. So according to this definition, peace is marked by an absence of trouble in one's life. That's certain. It says absence of war, hostilities, quarrels, disagreements, chaos, and insecurity. Absence of all of that equals peace. You would agree then that this peace is conditioned upon positive circumstances, right? As long as nothing bad is happening, 
you have peace. Peace is absent where there is disorder, chaos, and discord, and it is present when those things are absent. Now, I have to say that that definition is really too general for me, maybe even a little oversimplistic, since we all know that two nations, for example, that hate each other, don't have to be at war with each other in order to experience unrest. Even when there is a peace treaty between the two of them, people on both sides can still be on edge, waiting for something to happen. And to be honest, neither nation will be completely at ease until, or, or enjoy peace until the other is, is disabled and can no longer be a threat to them. Be that as it may, we maintain that this peace is situational has to be. And when we argue the, the same for this idea of internal contentment too, we see that in a fallen world, people are only at peace when the quality of their lives isn't threatened. That's situational. When the pressures of life are not bearing down on them, when they're not feeling hopeless or worried or fearful or facing some something menacing that's beyond their control. Then they're happy. Then they're at peace. Let me repeat, worldly peace is conditional. It is situational. Biblical peace, beloved, is not like this. Oh, no. It's much different because it is of a completely different nature. Just as biblical love and joy are from their worldly counterfeits, so is peace. Perhaps a good place for us to consider the difference in nature between worldly peace and biblical peace is John chapter 14. If you want to hold your place here and turn to John chapter 14, I want to read to you one verse from that chapter and then kind of dip into it here and there. Uh, as, uh, as we develop this, these are Jesus' words to his disciples. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. That's John 14, 17. What Jesus says in this verse is so powerful. Now, we can observe at least seven facts. Are you ready? Seven facts. First, Jesus has his own peace. He says, my peace, right? Biblical peace, then, is sourced in Christ, the Prince of Peace, not in fallen human hearts or anywhere else for that matter. You'll notice his definitive statement that his peace is not the same as the world's peace. He says, not as the world gives. So that's the first fact. Jesus has his own peace. It's sourced in him. Number two, since Jesus is God, his peace is of a divine nature, not an earthly, worldly nature. Third, Jesus must give this peace to anyone who would possess it. It cannot be obtained anywhere else. Fourth, 
Jesus' supernatural peace that he gives is unlike worldly peace in that it is not conditioned upon circumstance. It's not situational. Rather, it is grounded in a relationship with him who never changes. Jesus makes clear in, a lar in this larger context of the chapter that he had an intimate personal relationship with his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whenever you ask in my name, I will do it. I will ask the Father to give you a helper to be with you forever. And I will not leave you as orphans. You get the idea. It's relationship. It's personal. It's intimate. So whereas the world's peace is situational, such as the absence of war and trouble and hostility and danger and threats, etc., Jesus' peace is not. No, his peace is grounded in a relationship with him. The context bears this out, as I say. Jesus just announced to his disciples back in John 13 that he was going to die and leave them. Where I'm going, he says, you cannot come. Now, you can imagine how they must have felt. They left their lives as they had known it behind to follow the master. They gave everything up. And now he's leaving them. They must have been devastated. Jesus turns to the downtrodden clan and gives them his everlasting peace in the midst of their grief. And you know that their situation will get a lot worse before it gets better. So they can have his peace in the midst of this very terrible situation where anyone else in the world would not have peace. Their peace would remain for future troubling times. This is why Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. Fifth, Jesus gives peace that is enduring, everlasting, eternal. Now, why, why is that? Because as God, Jesus never changes. If he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so is his peace. It's deep and abiding, always lasting, always there. As a result, in 6, the supernatural peace that Jesus imparts to his disciples would enable them to be his confident champions in the face of any trial the rest of their lives. We have only to read the book of Acts, I think, and the epistles to see proof of that. Seventh and finally, Jesus' supernatural enduring peace that he gives and grounds in, his, in a relationship with him that enables his own to live confidently and be at rest through life looks forward to future glory. Jesus' peace looks forward to future glory. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus tells them not to be troubled, which is the opposite of peace, specifically because in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you also will be. P 
peace looks ahead to future glory. Jesus has a unique peace. It is not of this world. It is grounded, rather, in a relationship with him, and it is therefore enduring, and it anticipates future glory of heaven. Beloved, the world knows nothing of Jesus' peace. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 17, that non-Christians do not know the way of peace. Prophet Isaiah, centuries earlier, said the same thing. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, the best it can produce, the world, that is, is a cheap imitation that does not last. Counterfeit, not only look, looks like the real deal, but, you know, it can even seem superior because, after all, it is designed to accommodate the tastes of the masses. But in the end, it is quite inferior. It's deceptive. It's situational. It's here today, gone tomorrow. If anyone will experience true lasting peace, Jesus needs to give it to him. And he doesn't give it to everyone. Just before he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he uttered these sobering words about his unbelieving countrymen who would later reject him. He said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The things hidden from the Jews was the truth about Jesus, specifically that he was their king and the fulfillment of the messianic promises. He was the Christ of their scriptures, if they had only known then. Well, the text, or the next passage, rather, that I want to examine with you is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. So we leave John 14, we go over to Romans chapter 5, which tells us exactly how and why Jesus gives us his peace. Now, the secular definition of peace, you might remember from the American Heritage Dictionary, identified the essence of peace as the absence of war. And in one sense, I have to say that is true. Although not in the way that the editors of the dictionary meant it, or that the rest of the world understands it. Non-Christians are very much in a war with God, which accounts not only for the external hostilities, but also the internal strife and the unrest of the soul and why people turn to counterfeit peace in order to alleviate that unrest. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 8, just as a prep to make our way to chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tells us in no, no uncertain terms that the non-Christian is at war with God. Make no mistake. He says, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. People are at war with God. And in order to end this, this condition of enmity, God has to act. And he did. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God ended the war between us and him. He got rid of the enmity and reconciled us to himself. And that process demanded the death of Christ. Godly peace comes at a great price, you see. His death is what saved you and established peace. Now, Romans 5, we understand that not only why, but how Jesus gives us this peace. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know from John 14 that true peace belongs to Jesus and that he has to give it. And we learn here in Romans 5.1 that he gives it by means of his cross work, by which he accomplished several things. For example, he took our place and received God's wrath for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. I would say he also took our hell that we might have his heaven. Also, his substitutionary death satisfied a wrathful God. Paul uses the word propitiation in other contexts. It's a word that means that Jesus satisfied <clears throat> with his sacrifice the demands of God's penalty for sin. And when a person comes to God and trusts in Christ's cross work, God justifies that person, imputes Christ's righteousness to his account, and welcomes him in to covenant relationship, ending the enmity, ending the war. And when we receive Jesus' peace, true peace, it means that we are known by God personally, and we have received his judicial pardoning and salvation. If you've been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, you have this peace. It's in, the it's in this light that we must understand the remarkable declaration then of Romans 8.31. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a rhetorical question that makes the point that when God is for you, beloved, it makes no difference who or what is against you, it doesn't matter. Oh no, it's such a great truth and it brings true peace of mind. Nothing can move you when God is on your side. As an unbeliever, God was against you. And when God is against you, it doesn't matter who is for you. You could have the support of the whole world, but you will know no peace and no rest outside of Christ. And what accounts for people's misery, whether they know it or not, both external misery and internal misery, is the enmity that exists between them and God. In a fallen world that runs according to God's perfect will, there will always be external and internal unrest for those who are not right with God. As a result of being at odds with God, their lives take a certain course of action, always unsettled, always fighting, always unsatisfied, always looking for peace of mind. And Paul tells Timothy what accounts for terrible times in the last days, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses 2 to 5, it is because people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of the pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, this is not a description of people at rest who know Christ's peace. Is this at all surprising? This is what life looks like for those who are at odds with God and who suppress the truth of his existence and and want to go their own way and manufacture their own peace. But their fallen condition in a fallen world can never lead to true peace. As long as the worst case scenario, that is being in a state of enmity with God and facing his wrath, is still reality for people, they cannot know true peace. And that brings us to the last central passage that I want to examine with you. And that's 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. We went from John 14 to Romans 5, and now we're in 1 John 4, 18. 1 John 4, 18, John says to his congregation, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, what does John mean here? that there is no fear in love. Many in the world would disagree with that. People find love a very dangerous and frightening venture. You become vulnerable when you love someone. Yes, well, that's, that's more worldly wisdom that I think we need to forget. Fear in 1 John 4 refers to the fear of judgment and specifically God's judicial judgment at the end of time. That's what John has in mind. In other words, condemnation that awaits those who reject Christ. Now, John wants his deflated congregation to know that they are not in this condition, regardless of what the false teachers had told them. Rather, these Christians of Asia Minor receive God's love, which was shown to be perfect in the death of Christ. And when you're on the receiving end, of God's saving love. Fear you once had of condemnation is now gone. It's gone. It's gone for good. God's perfect love drives it out. It's not a reality for you anymore. Because you don't fear the worst case scenario, well, you needn't fear anything of lesser severity, right? Your greatest threat, the judge of the universe, has just become your father and your greatest ally. If God is for you, it makes no difference who is against you. Well, there is great peace in knowing that you belong to God, beloved. Well, what we've gleaned from these three passages is foundational, I think, to our understanding of biblical peace. Biblical peace is sourced in Jesus, a unique peace not of this world that is grounded in a relationship with him and therefore enduring and anticipates the future glory of heaven. 
And the reason people don't have this peace is because they are at war with God. Therefore, in order to have this true peace, you must be reconciled to God. Jesus does this by his cross work, and he gives you true peace. You no longer have any fear of God's judgment, and nothing else of lesser severity can even move you. Trusting the gospel, turning from your own sinful ways to ensure yourself a life of peace both now and forever, which only leads to judicial punishment and instead embracing the work of Christ alone, which reconciles you to God and bestows upon you this wonderful, unique peace that has no fear of judgment, is beyond the comprehension of the world. It really is. It, it will guard your mind and your heart. Nothing else establishes this enduring peace than the fact that you are no longer an enemy of God, but you are a son and a co-heir with Christ. You are fearless, completely at rest, strong and confident, unmoved by whatever you encounter in life. Is that you? Well, in the few remaining minutes that we have, I want to share the implications to biblical peace, some of which may have already become obvious to you now. Let me just say, first of all, to state for the record, once again, in order to experience this peace, you must be born again. You must be born again. We've made this point already. Unless and until a soul is converted, it will continue in an ongoing battle with God that will manifest its very that will manifest it in very bothersome and painful ways in a fallen world. And if that battle doesn't end at the foot of the cross with the work of Christ alone, then it will continue on after this earthly existence into internal condemnation. In Acts 26 verse 14. Jesus confronted Saul and he told him that it was hard for him to kick against the goads. And that's an idiom that refers to the futile attempts that animals have against resisting a cattle prod. And it's used figuratively here by the Lord for Paul. Paul knew the truth, but he was suppressing it. He was believing a lie. But the conviction of the truth about Christ confronted him and confronted him. And like a cattle prod, eventually it became so unbearable that he could resist no longer. The struggle as an unbeliever did not bring him peace. There is a reason that Paul calls the precious message of redemption the gospel of peace. He knew firsthand it brought him peace. And in Ephesians 6.15, where Paul mentions the gospel of, tea, of peace, he no doubt is echoing the sentiments of the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 52, verse 7, Isaiah says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. Before we leave this impl first implication and we go on to the second, it's necessary, I think, that we understand what we're saying regarding peace 
in Romans chapter 1. In that famous chapter, Paul describes in detail, you may remember, the total depravity of unbelievers who are not at peace with God. He speaks of their suppression of the truth, as Paul did. And in their own, and, uh, and he speaks of, of their own or, or firm belief in the lie that there is peace in their own autonomy and in their own independence apart from God. Again, something that many people believe and, and are driven by. Paul wants us to know that unbelievers, however, really do know down in the core of their being that they are at odds with a holy God. This is Romans 1. They know what he is and that they're accountable to him. They know that there's, there's something not quite right and that no amount of wealth, possessions, good health, safety from terrorist attacks or good relationships with others will bring to an end this inner turmoil and upset that's caused by the enmity that exists between them and God. They, they can continue, of course, to beat down this recurring thought, this truth, to the point where they're no longer plagued by it, or they can respond honestly and sanely to it by repenting of their sin and trusting Christ. Well, it's the first implication, and even though it's obvious, I think it, it was worthy to repeat. You must be born again. Number two, Jesus' peace is the solution to racism. It's the solution to racism. Racism really is contrary to peace, isn't it? It's a hot-button issue right now, not because America is racist, I, I believe, but because the current administration wants to use this narrative for a political advantage. With control of the media, the country is told not only that this, pro this is a problem, but, all, but, but, but uh, the solution to all of it. Uh, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that what they are proposing really as a solution is reverse racism at its best. Social justice theory, all white people are inherently white supremacists, the woke agenda, and on and on it goes. I can tell you for sure on sound biblical authority that the only solution to racism is the gospel. And why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ is the only one, he is the only true source of peace. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. And we heard it read this morning in our in our um, scripture reading, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, establishing peace. And he might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. Now, Paul's not addressing a peace that God establishes between himself and us or ridding the enmity between us and himself in conversion. Uh, we've already argued that. Rather, Paul is addressing the peace that he establishes or God establishes between those who know God's peace. He's addressing human relationships. 
the, the deep and abiding organic peace that is part of a Christian's spiritual DNA compels us to treat others made in the image of God with respect. Indeed, we are called to love our, our neighbor, even our enemy. And this is especially the case toward other believers. Paul has in mind specifically Jews and Gentiles, and we could include Samaritans in the Gentile category as far as the Jews are concerned. And these parties have been made members of the same body, which was really unheard of in the mind of any staunch, devout Jew at that time. Conversion, you see, is the only sure solution to racism. And when you become a Christian, you become spiritually related to other Christians of all ethnic groups. And everyone in the body of Christ is first a Christian before he or she is anything else. Greatest solution to racism is the gospel. Number three, worldly peace is situational, but divine peace is grounded in a relationship with Christ. Now, we've mentioned this before. What does it mean, practically speaking? Well, simply this, that those outside of a relationship with Christ will at best experience a sense of peace in their lives, but only to the degree, to the, to the degree that their circumstances will allow. In other words, the kind of peace they know and the intensity and duration of it are based solely on what is happening to them at the time. They will have a peace of mind and be quite at ease when the situation allows for it, and more at ease and more at peace when the situation gets brighter and more promising. But the reverse is equally true. Their peace will diminish in frequency and intensity when the context dictates. And where there is turmoil, their peace is non-existent. Remember that the definition from the dictionary. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 verses 6 to 9 that Jesus' peace is beyond the comprehension of the world because it reigns in the worst of times. Times that the world would find to be worrisome, fearful, and upsetting, far from peaceful, but not so the Christian. Because his peace is anchored in a relationship with Jesus Christ that never changes. Christians' peace is not threatened by these circumstances, you see. It's not situational. Even if he is thrust into tumultuous situations, pressured from all sides, he can still be at peace. And he can receive persecution gladly because he knows to whom he belongs, from where he has come and where he is going. Biblical peace is quite informed by divine truth, beloved, by theology. For example, my peace is cultivated all the more in such dreadful times because the Word of God tells me what's true of trials, that God tailors them to fit my situation and use them for my good to make me more like Christ. Charles Spurgeon spoke on divine peace, thriving especially in trial in one of his sermons. Here's 
just a portion. I quote, frequently have I to remark that Christians placed in the most unfavorable circumstances are, as a rule, better Christians than those who are placed in propitious positions. In the midst of a very large church of persons in all ranks, with the condition of most of whom I am as thoroughly conversant as man can well be, I have observed that the woman who comes from house women who comes from come from houses where they have ungodly husbands and trying children, that young people who come from workshops where they are opposed and laughed at, that people who come from the depths of poverty, from the dens and kens of our city, are the brightest jewels that are set in the crown of the church. It seems as if God would defeat nature, not only make the hyssop grow on the wall, but make the cedar grow there too. He finds his brightest pearls in the darkest waters and brings up his most precious, precious jewels from the filthiest dunghills. And this I have found too, that often the more disturbed a Christian man is, the purer is his peace. The heavier the rolling swell, his griefs and sorrow, the more still and calm and profound is the peace that reigns within his heart. So then, it is peace divinely born, divinely nourished, and one which is quite above the influence of this poor, worrying world. End quote. Now, this reminds me of, of the psalmist's testimony in Psalm 23, which screams of this kind of inner, deep, abiding, and organic peace of the true worshiper. But I'm particularly struck by verse 5. Every time I read it, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What a picture that is. A picture of God's peace reigning in the heart of one of his worshipers in the worst of his of, his, of moments of his life. Far from being threatened by what's happening all around him, the psalmist is almost oblivious to the personal attacks of his enemies. Oh, they're, he, they can threaten, persecute, fire away all day long. It makes no difference to the state of mind of this true believer because of what he knows to be true of the great shepherd who watches over his soul. He is in want of nothing. He knows that he is in the will of God. And we know the same things. These things that enhance our peace. And so we sing, stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. The believer's peace is not threatened by anything external to him, but is anchored in the relationship with Christ, and so it endures. Number four, since divine peace comes from God and not from the world, we cannot look to the world to cultivate our peace. That would almost go without saying, but it does need to be said. A five-year-old boy has a carpenter for a dad, and he wants to be just like him. 
And when his dad does work around the house, his son puts on his play tool belt, comes equipped with the plastic accoutrements, a hammer, a screwdriver, a chisel, a wrench, a planer, a square, and a tape measure made of yarn. On one of their projects together, Dad needs a tool for a specific job that he cannot seem to find in his tool belt, and his son says, here, Daddy, use mine. Well, if I can get you beyond the Kodak moment there, you'll realize what's wrong with that picture. It's the same thing that makes it so precious. Dad cannot use what the son gives him, nor can the son do the dad's work. A child cannot do a man's job, and an adult wouldn't go to the land of make-believe for fake tools to accomplish the job. It's not only silly, but it's totally useless. Now, in the same way, Christians are outfitted for spiritual sojourning and battling and ministering for which they cannot use the ways and means of the world. The Corinthians didn't understand that, and that led them to reject Paul for a time because he didn't preach in the same style as the secular orators of the day using the same fancy and emotionally charged words for persuasion. But those of us who preach the gospel don't use the oratory techniques of the world. They're no better than the plastic counterfeits from the land of make-believe. We come not with these man-made techniques, but with humility and preaching nothing more and nothing less than the words of Christ. And when it comes to fighting the fight of faith, we don't fight as the world fights. Their war is not our war. We don't resort to secular war tactics, which again are inadequate substitutes for the real spiritual divinely ordained armor of God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapon of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. Beloved, it is a sad fact today that the church, in the church, many Christians turn to the world's accoutrements to live out their Christian lives, to do the local church ministry, to counsel hurting souls, to maintain their spiritual walk. How silly that they would go to the world's toy box for pretend tools that are absolutely useless, for the world's ways are, are, are mere plastic props. And how prideful are we to reject the Holy Spirit's provision of spiritual armor that protects us from the evil one and the spiritual weaponry such as the word of God that actually destroys the fortresses of people's satanic ideologies. Beloved, the best that the world has to offer cannot compare with what we have been given in Christ, not to mention we cannot minister, work out our salvation, evangelize, run the church, or do any of our God-given responsibilities with the world's help. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom are by nature different, and they compete with each other. As we learn from Galatians 5, the flesh and the spirit war against each other. What we're saying here is actually related to the previous point that we just made about our peace not being dependent on circumstance. 
If that is the case, then neither can biblical peace ever be affected or enhanced or detracted from or improved upon by our living situation, our health, or our financial status. Our peace does not come from external means such as those, but from a divine spiritual source, God's word, and it's there that we must go to cultivate our organic peace. God has given us all we need in his word for life and godliness and the ability to study and appropriate that word, prayer, ministry, and service, putting to death the lust of the flesh, confession and repentance, perseverance in God's truth, all of those things develop our peace, our theology, our private and communal worship. These all cultivate our organic peace. Well, we have more to say about biblical peace and to address those times, I think, in the Christian life when peace seems to be strangely absent. You may have been motivated by what I've said, may have been excited, but at the same time, maybe, maybe a bit sad because maybe some of the things that I have explained with regard to godly peace do not seem to be characteristic of your life. Now, if you know Christ then there needs to be an answer to that, and we will give one next time. What accounts for this, and how do I revive Jesus' peace that passes all understanding that it will guard my heart and my mind? We'll deal with that next time. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word, which is so matchless and unique, so absolute, a word from your mouth to our ears as we see and study and as we know this part particularly of your word we pray that we would be encouraged by it that we would not only understand this organic peace which with which you have infused us because of Christ and his work but how we might cultivate that peace so that we can move and minister that we can run the race and fight the good fight with peace of mind being stayed upon Jehovah. We pray then, O oh God, that you will find us resting in Christ this week to come until we meet again. Sustain us, we pray, that we might rally around the truth yet again to understand your great truth regarding biblical peace for your, for your honor and glory and for the benefit of your church. Amen.